I'm Neil Barton. This episode covers a dark and tragic time in American history, the height of the Cold War. Thousands of human beings and helpless animals fell victim to chemical, biological, and drug experiments. In November 1953, an army scientist named Frank Olson was thrown out the window of a 13th floor hotel room in New York City. Left behind in the wreckage were his loving wife, Alice Olson, and three children under the age of 10, Eric, Nils, and Lisa. In order to understand Frank Olson's murder, you need to understand his job and the people he worked under first. Only one person has done a masterful job putting these pieces together, H.P. Alberelli Jr. I interviewed Mr. Alberelli about his seminal book, A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments. What do you prefer I call you? Is it uh, Hank or HP or Mr. Alberelli? What do you people usually call you? <laughs> Hank is, is fine. Really appreciate you talking to me today about your book, even though you mm-hmm. wrote it like eight or mm-hmm. nine years ago. Yeah, I was just looking. I, I'd forgotten the date when it came out. It was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. 2009. Yeah. Around 2009. That's yeah. right. I heard that you worked for the Carter administration. Is that right? You worked in the White House for a little bit there? Yeah, that was quite a, quite a while before that. Yeah. You know, reading your book... Some of the terrible things that happened in there. I couldn't help thinking it's too bad Jimmy Carter wasn't around a decade or so earlier because it, it's hard to imagine him putting up with this. A lot no, of this he, kind of he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have put up with it at all. Uh, and actually, about that same time when he was elected, things maybe a year or two before things were starting, there were a lot of revelations in the. New York Times, Washington Post. So he learned about most of it, you know, about the same time as everyone else. When these experiments were going on in the uh, decade or two before that, were the other presidents, do you mm-hmm. think, were they fully aware of what the CIA and the military was doing, or do you think they were kind of ignorant and the CIA kind of kept it secret from them? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, that would have involved, uh, well, initially Eisenhower, uh, uh, Truman, Eisenhower, and then uh uh, was it Kennedy? Uh, I suspect Eisenhower knew something. I don't know. I don't know the, you know, the level of what. There's certainly nothing. There's nothing in in writing or any documents that that yeah. tie any of the private those presidents uh, directly into the programs. Uh, I would guess that they didn't know. Uh, you know, again, those programs were fairly low on the totem pole in terms of what what presidents were, were concerned about in terms of foreign affairs. And if anything, those programs, in a lot of ways, were, were illegal under the CIA's charter. Uh, you know, they're, they're not supposed to operate domestically, but uh, <laughs> as everyone yeah. knows, they do all the time. From reading your book, you know, the impression I mm-hmm. got, the impression I got of guys like uh, Alan Dulles, and kind of the upper mm-hmm. the upper levels of the CIA is they kind of come from this world where we went to the Ivy League schools. We know what's best for the country, and it's nobody else's mm-hmm. business. They don't need to know about it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was that was the attitude for sure. And keeping in mind that uh, all of those people, you know, had gone or practically all of them had gone through the war first. Were very active with intelligence during the Second World War and just sort of slid into place after the war as the CIA was created and a lot of people from the OSS just transferred into the the agency. And your book is about, besides the murder of Frank Olson and talking about the fascinating details of that case, your book, it almost seems kind of uses, and I don't mean this in a bad way, Frank Olson is like a vessel to talk about this dark and kind of sad time our country was going through you know yeah well that's that's exactly right uh i didn't i didn't set out to use olson olson that way but it it quickly you know within the first year became pretty apparent that olson in a lot of ways was just a prop for referring and and detailing everything that was going on around him if anything he was part and parcel 
of a, a lot of the horrors that were happening. Sure, uh, yeah. At he the was time, there. he wasn't he wasn't exactly innocent. Now, this is some project you did. This this book is just some work you put together, and <coughs> probably getting information out of the government can be frustrating and like banging your head against the yeah. wall. <laughs> Uh, was, mm-hmm. Were there ever times where you felt like giving up or like maybe this isn't worth it? No, really. Uh, no, uh, because at that time, believe it or not, it was it was actually easier to get information yeah. uh, from the government, including the CIA. I can remember often uh, writing a, a freedom of information request and, and getting an answer within, I don't know, three or four weeks. Which is just unheard of now. <laughs> That's unheard of these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've got uh, FOIAs on, you know, that are active that haven't even been been addressed initially for four four or five years now. They've never even acknowledged receiving them. Uh, and it, if anything, it became a lot harder to to get documents uh, about the time that uh, Obama was elected. Uh, I don't know why. I don't. I think uh, obviously it was tied to his administration, but I don't know directly why. Maybe obviously somebody said to to slow down the system, and and they did. Yeah. And and it 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 hasn't gotten any better at all. I do. I hear. I've hear journalists complain sometimes that uh, FOIA has become a joke. Yeah. Well, they can stretch. You know, I, I had a lot of luck. I was surprised, but I knew I knew specifically what I was looking for, and it's always better to to ask specifically for you know whatever documents you're looking for. So when you're when you cast a net widely and just say, you know, I want everything you have on X Y Z or Mister A B C, they they just uh, they don't react. Uh, too kindly to that because in a lot of cases you're talking about a massive amount of material god only knows the files they have on on certain projects or or people initially i got i got very specific about what i wanted if it was broad i'd say well you know i want files on mr xyz but just for the year 1954 and that seemed to make it easier and then uh, there were a number of archives out there that were extremely helpful that that allowed me to sidestep or avoid uh, going the the FOIA route. Which you know, if I had to go the FOIA route for um, most of what I had, of um, you know, I'd still be working on the book now. I think. <laughs> yeah, and besides getting all those documents, you obtained the cooperation or the help of some CIA officials, even if some of them you had to keep your some ex officials, even if some of them you had to keep them anonymous. It's it was amazing yeah. to me how many people you got to talk to you and give you answers. I mean, how how, how did you manage yeah, to do that? Yeah, I was well, I just uh met it head on. Uh, you know, I I got certain names with with a couple people uh, the primary people who remained anonymous, uh, that was just strictly luck. That was, you know, it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time and nothing by design whatsoever. With other people, you know, I just, uh, I was lucky in terms of getting phone numbers or, or locations. And, uh, you know, I just, in most cases, just called them up. Uh, a lot, A lot of people, more people than more people said no than certainly said yes, but I didn't, <laughs> Yeah, you know, most of those people were, I think I mentioned a lot of those people because some of them were key to the story, like Lashbrook and oh, Lashbrook. Uh, who worked with Gottlieb and he, he was alive while I wrote the book. I should mention here that Robert Lashbrook was a CIA scientist who was in the hotel room with Frank Olson on the night Frank was murdered. The night manager of the hotel and responding police officers found Lashbrook sitting on the toilet with his head in his hands. He, he wouldn't talk at all, uh, and nor would any of his, his friends. Extremely tight, tight-lipped, yeah. Lashbrook was a stubborn ass to the end. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
but he, uh, he certainly was. Yeah, as far as Frank Olson mm-hmm. goes, he was a 42-year-old scientist for at Fort Detrick, right. working for the right. Army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, initially he'd been he, he had been in the ranks of the army. He'd been a captain in the army and went there during the war as an officer, and then. Right after the war, uh, resigned his commission, but stayed on as a civilian employee. Yeah. Essentially in the same exact job. He was part of a whole, like I said, this is a really sad time, uh, a terrible time in our history. He was part of this mm-hmm. whole government apparatus, like this, all these different projects, like MK Naomi and MK Ultra. They're called mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. They would do these experiments on uh, just so many helpless animals and human beings, yep. kind of dosing them with drugs yeah. and LSD. Mm-hmm. And when you think back, doesn't it seem cartoonish and silly they were actually trying to find a truth serum? Well, yeah, that part does. That seems very uh, comical in, in a lot of ways. But I guess in fairness, nobody, know, you know, in the early 50s, Nobody, only a few people knew about the existence of LSD and and nobody really knew a whole lot about it, its effects or what it could do or couldn't do. It seemed like it took them an awfully long time to figure out that it wasn't an effective compound in terms of being used as a truth serum. You know, it was 10 years, but at that point in time, all those contracts had gotten entrenched in the bureaucracy and it was in a lot of ways, funny money for all the uh, all the researchers at various universities and institutions across the country, and everybody wanted a piece of the pie. So you know, just it just went on. Uh, you know, it's they they still use LSD to a certain extent today, but they use it almost exclusively as a as a harassment drug. You know, they it's been used in Guantanamo just to mess with people's heads, to you know, give them a glass of water, and then you know, to dose with LSD. And of course, yeah. LSD doesn't smell or, or, or take on any appearance, and then you know, 45 minutes an hour later, you're you're coming on to it and uh, they'll use that environment for whatever devious purposes they, they, you know, they have, but it's fairly well documented. And in the sixties, any college student could have told you this, that it doesn't make one prone to telling the truth. If anything, it's, it can be difficult for certain individuals to, to focus on reality or, or focus on the truth. But it wasn't just, L- it wasn't just LSD they, they experimented with. It was essentially every, every drug you can think of under the sun, including, you know, masculine, heroin, morphine, everything. They just went through the whole the the whole gamut in in terms of experimentation. I don't think anything drug wise really panned out to to be anything of any importance. I think out of all all the MK Ultra stuff, I think probably the only thing that they did find useful was hypnosis. I think they went a lot further with hypnosis than people realize, and I think they had a lot more success with hypnosis than they claimed. They they claimed that hypnosis was essentially worthless in in the same regard as LSD, but that record really paints that out to be untrue. They had a lot of success with hypnosis. And of course, that begs the whole issue of, you know, hypnotized assassins or couriers. And, you know, I think uh, that's not not a whole lot of fantasy. I think certain things did happen in that regard. Whether or not you could hypnotize somebody and and send them out to... carry out an assassination a week later is still questionable. A lot of people, there's a lot of hypnotists that claim, you know, that can be done uh, without a whole lot of difficulty. So given that, the thing I realized, I thought, initially I thought, well, that's really significant. You can turn a regular day Sally or Joe into an assassin. But then when I, when I looked at the record, the thing that was more than more than clear is that they ha- they had no trouble whatsoever recruiting assassins. So they didn't need they didn't need to hypnotize people. They didn't need to give people drugs. There were ample people out there willing willing to to carry out an assassination project for them for money or out of patriotism or whatever whatever reason. So it wasn't like hypnosis became sort of the magic 
a magic button to give them free reign assassination-wise. So if anything, the whole, <laughs> all the projects really were sort of reduced to a comedic element in a lot of ways. There may be things we missed that were successful, but the more I looked at the programs, the more I realized uh, if, if there were successes, they, they, haven't, they haven't been found yet. Yeah. And what was Frank Olson's typical day at work? Was he developing uh, offensive chemical weapons or offensive biological weapons or both when he went to Fort Teacher? Well, I think both uh, offensive chemical and biological weapons. Initially, uh, during the war, I think, I think he arrived there in 42 or 43. It was primarily defensive weapons and, and projects. Uh, he, he was involved a lot initially in the design of uh, countermeasures to various aerosol gases that would be used in a military setting. And, you know, I think he worked two or three years on that. And that's actually how he initially met Harold Abramson, the, the doctor that allegedly treated him in New York. The week he the, the week he died, uh, but yeah, yeah, he worked with Abramson for two or three years during the war, both at Dietrich and at uh, Edgewood Arsenal. Uh, and they knew they knew each other pretty well. And I understand Abramson Abramson had a uh, psychiatry degree, but he wasn't practicing psychiatry. Is that right? No, but yeah, that's a lot. A lot's been made out of the fact that they took him to Abramson for psychiatric reasons, yet Abramson wasn't a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But that's not quite true. He he wasn't through medical training, but he certainly had a fair amount of credentials in terms of psychology uh, and he had treated people and he'd done he performed an enormous amount of research uh, with LSD before yeah. before Olson came to see him in that sort of actually in, in a way that supports any theory that that there was concern about the effects of LSD on Olson as a result of his being dosed at Deep Creek Lake like lend some legitimacy towards the CIA's defense, but I don't think that was the case. Uh, yeah. But there's too much made out of the fact that, that Abramson wasn't per se a, a psychiatrist. Okay, all right. So, uh, Frank... But, uh, <laughs> no, I was, I was just thinking about Abramson's role. It's, you know, it's still not well understood. I think I th my theory, and I think it's a little bit more than a theory, is... I think at the time that Olson was taken to see, was taken to New York to see Abramson, I don't think the agency had formulated anything clear in its head about, uh, I'm sorry, that's, I think that's my phone. It's uh, a signal for a message, but just ignore it. Okay. But it wasn't clear in the agency's head what they wanted to do with, with Olson. I think they were, they were fairly perplexed. He could be an obstinate, stubborn person. He wasn't listening to counter arguments. So, you know, I think in going to Abramson, the the one advantage that's greatly overlooked when, when Abramson is spoken about was that Abramson, again, knew Olson pretty well. They had worked together. So I, th I think they selected Abramson because they thought maybe there could be a dialogue uh, you know, reasonable dialogue between the two men. Yeah. And, you know, allegedly that didn't work. Uh, there was, there was no, uh, there was no positive dialogue at all. Just to try to draw as complete a picture of Frank Olson as you could, you talked, you know, you did mm -hmm. a lot of research into his personality and his personnel records. Yeah, I did. And, uh, you mm -hmm. know, he was, he was, um, he was, in some ways, he was a normal guy. He was a family guy. He's got a wife and three kids. And mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. just like any of us, he had his flaws. Yeah, he had a lot of. I think he had a lot of faults. I think, uh, quite honestly, the the more the more I got to to know him, the the less I liked him. <laughs> yeah. I, I realized that he probably wasn't. You know, I could work with a man like that in the same setting if I had to, but I wouldn't seek it out myself. And and I certainly wouldn't have enjoyed it he wasn't he was he could be fairly bigoted about a lot of things you found out that he might have be somewhat anti-semitic isn't that right it was extremely he was his 
his uh, a member of his family told me that he was uh, that he was so bad when he was around uh, people that were, were Jewish that this family member said he would just get up and leave uh-huh. because he knew he, he knew the situation wasn't going to be good. Frank just made no effort whatsoever to be discreet. He just uh, would just say horrible, horrible and abusive things. And of course, that raises the whole issue of who who Olson was working with. I mean, he was his superior at the CIA was was Sidney Gottlieb, who was Jewish, who didn't practice, uh, wasn't a practicing Jew. But it's my understanding that didn't make any difference to, to Frank. Yeah. Abramson was a Jew, uh, yeah. and that, according to everything I heard, had to had to raise problems. So, so I don't know, uh, Frank. I think Frank also drank a fair amount. I don't think he drank on the job, but I think when he was off duty or not working, he drank a fair amount. And I think everybody there at Dietrich, because the job was so stressful, did more than their share of consuming alcohol yeah i can uh, imagine i can imagine the need to blow off a little steam after seeing oh yeah after seeing what you had done and having that experience yeah. for eight yeah, hours and you, and you can't yeah you can't talk about it at all you can't even talk to your spouse and and so you know it's I, i'm sure it's very stressful and things that be, be, uh build up and best way to deal with it is to drink i guess but yeah. uh but the overall, the overall mix, personality-wise, with Frank, in, in my view, wasn't good. Of course, you know, he just wasn't, I thought, a very likable person. That didn't change what should have or shouldn't have happened with him at all. I, you know, he was, in my view, he was technically murdered. I don't think he was deliberately murdered. A lot of people make a lot about the fact that the CIA's assassination manual that was produced actually the year after Olson died laid out fatal falls as as a means of killing people or or actually throwing people from, from high places. But that scenario in regards to Olson, when you really step back and, and examine it closely, just didn't make a lot of sense. They... There were so many ways they could have disposed of Frank Olson without throwing him through a closed glass window. It seems like that's the uh, loudest, that, messiest kind of way yeah. you could do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, that that was the worst, the absolute worst. You know, any day that he was in New York, pretty much at any time, they could have just snatched him off the sidewalk. And and the intent was to take him take him back to uh, to Maryland to. Uh, uh, Chestnut Lodge, which was a mental institution, a private mental institution, but it was used very, very extensively by the CIA for for their employees, and and that was the intent. And Frank was resistant towards that. He didn't even, you know, he didn't want to do that. He didn't think anything was wrong with him. He just wanted, didn't want to work any longer for Fort Detrick or or the CIA. To his credit, if if he had gone to Chestnut Lodge, I don't think he would have ever come out of Chestnut Lodge alive. I think he certainly, you know, he would have hung himself, allegedly hung himself, or, or perhaps committed suicide in some other sort of way, because I don't think he would have ever backed off from his stubbornness about wanting to to get away from the work he was doing. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that turning point when he wanted to get away. Now, you talked in your book about mm-hmm. how he basically he broke security a couple times, right? And it got back mm-hmm. to the CIA yeah, he that he had done this. Now, one of those times, uh, he just happened to be riding to work with... Um, with a neighbor. Yeah, yeah, a neighbor he was commuting with. and mm-hmm. he, Well, anyways, he mentioned the neighbor. We don't know what exactly what he said, but the neighbor mm-hmm. went... What the neighbor reported him to the right. CIA's office of security, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think he, yeah, he reported him to to the the Dietrich security office to Vincent Rouette, who who in turn picked up the phone and called the CIA right away. Yeah, uh, because that you know that's just a chief concern. What Olson mentioned eventually, and 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 I think to the neighbor was that I think he said some something sarcastic to the effect that he been involved in various projects and use the example of a project that had been conducted in France. 
in the early 50s uh, involving infecting bread in a small French town, Pont Saint-Esprit, to see what the effect would be. I'm glad uh, you said it before I did, because I know I would have mangled the mm-hmm. pronunciation of that little town. Pont Saint-Esprit, yeah. right? Yeah. It's Pont Saint-Esprit. Pont, I think, in my friends are not good, but means bridge, bridge of the spirits or whatever. But it's really not. A lot of people refer to it as a, a small town or village. Uh, and if anything, it's, it was sort of a, at that given time, it was a small city of maybe, I think, five or 6,000 people. So it wasn't real, real small. But at that point, in 1952, it was fairly common throughout France, throughout lots of parts of Europe to to have bread delivered to your door, much like mm-hmm. uh, milk was delivered to your doorstep uh, in the United States at that time. And what the project that was engaged infected uh, with LSD or an LSD type compound. There were numerous LSD type compounds being experimented with at that point in time, most of them from Sandoz Chemical, but and the bread, some of the bread that was delivered to the town uh, was infected with with that camp compound. And and by by infected, I just mean to, uh, you know it was basically dribbled onto the bread and allowed to soak in. Yeah. And it, you know I think I think that was done maybe an hour or two before, and, and that was fine. And and because of the random nature of that is testimony to the fact that the outbreak in the town only affected about three or 400 people, despite that, you know, everybody, virtually every household got bread delivered, but that was enough. I mean, it was a, (laughs) by all accounts, it was a pretty horrific scene. And fortunately, uh, more people, you know, weren't fatally injured or, or, or killed, uh, as a result of it, I, I think it's debated that there were three or four suicides as a result of that experiment. And then a fairly large number of people were carted off to to various institutions nearby the town. But I don't think many of those people were confined or detained for a long, long time. I think, uh, you know, once once the drug wore off and and they calmed down. But it, the, the, the reason it was it was basically pandemonium is because these people had no idea what was affecting them. They had no idea what was, what was happening to them. It was, you know, like they were completely normal one minute and the next, uh, the next minute, you know, they were hallucinating. Hallucinating. They have no sense of time. uh, Yeah. yeah, Just, you know, whatever, what everybody, everybody reacts differently to LSD. You know, there's some common effects, but the drug almost, tailors itself to people's moods or personalities. Was that a CIA? Was that experiment when they turned uh, Ponce Esprit into their little laboratory? You know, mm-hmm. was that was that the CIA's experiment or an army experiment? No, actually, no, it wasn't. It's commonly reported that it was a CIA experiment, but it, it was not. It was an army experiment, and it was the army that was extremely interested in in use of the drug uh, as sort of a, a non-lethal non-lethal weapon and and there were a number of papers that were produced right before the experiment by the army proposing that that something like that be conducted to study yeah. what the effects what the effects could be uh, so it wasn't like you know the fact that they were going to do it wasn't it was signaled quite clearly in, in confidential and secret papers. Do you think they uh, could have imagined how bad it was going to turn out? This is a good question. Prior, there were a number, I think there were two or three incidents, probably more, where various military people were given the drug in an unwitting fashion so they could observe the effects. And, and there were a few cases where things didn't go well. They had a hard time controlling people. People got extremely paranoid and, and ran from from people that were trying to to handle them or sub, subdue them. But prior to that, there were no there were no suicides or or any violence. Yeah. But I think I think you know I think if if they'd really 
thought it through and consulted the right people, I think it would have been quite easy to predict what happened. It would have been very easy. And if anything, they I think they got off easy. Didn't you find some information to suggest that Frank Olson was actually there either either during it or right yeah, before? Yeah, he was. He was. The, the, his people, people from his division, his division at, at it was called Camp Dietrich then. Mm-hmm. It was the SOD or the Special Operations Division were on scene for the experiment. And they, you know, they wanted to observe it uh, firsthand. They weren't in uniform. They weren't there, you know, as 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 American observers. I did, how they camouflaged themselves, I really don't know. I think it would have been pretty easy given all the, the chaos and confusion. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, and I don't know if they filmed it. I think in, that's pretty unlikely, given the fact that, it, you know, the year it was and and the, the level of sophistication of camera equipment at that point in time. But, yeah, and I, I interviewed, actually interviewed a few people who were still alive at that time who had worked with Olsen and, and they were fairly cagey, but in most of this is in the book. They confirmed the fact that they had been in France and and that something, quote-unquote, had happened to that effect. Since the book came out, the story, you know, a lot of books like that, the story becomes very organic. And suddenly, you know, a year later after the book is published, information starts coming in that's just totally unexpected. So I, yeah. I did fortunately have a couple calls from people who were very very closely related to a couple people that worked with Olson whose whose family members were were at Pont Saint Esprit and and they were able to you know to confirm it and that before these two people I'm I'm specifically thinking of died they they did confide in a, in a couple of family members uh, in regards to what had happened. That wasn't, that was well before the book came out though. Well, well before that was, that would have been in the seventies and maybe in one case, the early eighties, mm-hmm. but it wasn't surprising, you know, that there would be guilt about that. It wasn't surprising at all. Yeah. So you think, um, this Ponce Esprit experiment, mm-hmm. do you think that could have been what caused Frank Olson to not only break security and talk to people about it that he shouldn't have, but, you know, think mm-hmm. about going into a different line of work? Is that possible? Yeah, I think I think that's, that's probably one of the things. It's certainly one of the things he flippantly, maybe sarcastically used as something, you know, he knew. I don't, I, I really have no way of determining what kind of conscience he did have. Yeah. Uh, uh, some people, some people claim that, you know, he felt uh, fairly tragic and passionate about, you know, things that he had done or things that he had also seen that caused him to want to leave his work. But I haven't seen any direct evidence of that at all, uh, yeah. that, that he felt that passionately uh, about anything if if he was that passionate i he certainly did it for a long time he did it for a good 10 or 11 years uh and you know half of it un, in wartime conditions so i don't know they went through the records i looked at uh, there were ample documents just about the number of primates that were shipped to olson's lab and at camp dietrich uh uh, during the early 50s, and, and they were going through hundreds, if not thousands, of, of primates a year for a two-year period. And, and I'm not quite sure what they were doing. Uh, you know, they're probably experimenting with everything under the sun. Uh, yeah, you. I, I mean, some of that the the stuff with the animals. I got to tell you, Hank, that was <laughs> those were the toughest parts of your book for me to read for some reason. Uh, I know. Just because I'm such a sucker for. I know. You know. It, it is. Yeah, we all are. It's it's really horrific. It's because uh, you know the, you're really dealing with something that's totally defenseless, defenseless, and yeah, and uh, there's no reason for it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just pictured the monkeys with these scared looks in their faces, just sitting helpless yeah, in a cage, yeah. you know, 
not knowing what's about to happen. Yeah, to there were yeah there were some horrible experiments conducted on monkeys too. There, you know, like brain transplants and just just absolutely horrible things. Uh, anything you could imagine uh, they were doing, and that's I don't know. That's just really horrific as far as I'm concerned. And was there one other? Okay, and when Frank broke security by talking to his commuting buddy in the car, was there one other incident too when he mm-hmm. broke security? I thought I remembered one other that the CIA found out about. Oh, I think it? there were several. There were several. No, okay. I, th- I think there were actually several uh, where he was reported, where various. The colleagues uh, reported, you know, expressed that they were concerned uh, about him on on one level or another. Yeah, uh, there were at least several. Yeah, yeah. So that's what led to this meeting at Deep Creek Lake. Now, MK Ultra mm-hmm. and, and those other projects—they're so secret that instead of writing mm-hmm. a lot of reports about them, they chose to meet in person to discuss them. Right. Different, right. different right. people, officials in the army and in uh, the CIA, and that's how the yeah, meeting... supposed yeah allegedly they had uh, quarterly meetings with the CIA. Fort Detrick and the CIA would would meet in a retreat type situation to discuss you know what they had been working on, and there were four or five meetings that I was able to document before. The yeah. Deep Creek Lake meeting, and they were all in very rural, quiet, remote, uh, woodsy locations. Casual atmosphere, uh, too, be, right? They're like, you know, yeah. drinking yeah. some booze, yeah. just kind of shooting the yeah, you know what, I mean. yeah, very relaxing. And yeah, that's how that final infamous meeting at Deep Creek Lake was sold to Frank Olson. It's just another one of these meetings we have to have, right? Yeah, that's right. And the the truth of that meeting and, and the initial facts regarding that meeting came out in the mid seventies with the CIA's account. And, and, but their account was that everybody had gotten together to have a meeting to discuss their work. And as a lark or as fun after dinner one night, everyone was given a, a glass of control of a liqueur that that was dosed with LSD and and yeah that's real fun according huh? to yeah according to according to uh, all the statements regarding the meeting it, it was a fairly mild dose of LSD but the other thing is that nobody I don't think anybody ever talked about this I think I mentioned in the book is it was very common at that point in time for people for physicians working with Dietrich and uh, the CIA to self-experiment with with any drug that they were experimenting with on other people so that they'd know, you know, exactly what they were dealing with. And it made a lot of sense. And a number of the doctors I, I interviewed, you know, very freely described that, that, you know, yes, I'd had LSD. I didn't, you know, I had it once and it was, you know, self-experimenting because I knew uh, the work we were doing regarded giving the drug to witting and unwitting people. And, and I think almost to a man, with the exception of Sidney Gottlieb, nobody really liked their experience uh, with LSD. Gottlieb, contrary to everyone I interviewed, said that he really found that there were a number of very significant benefits personally to his taking the drug but he was a pretty deep thinker and and he religiously he was i think he spent like 20 or 30 years of his life really seriously searching just spirituality and and religion and so he probably took advantage of the drug in ways very very similar to scientists that came down the road after him like timothy leary or or was it bob arandas or whatever his name was, uh, Leary's partner. and But there was a fair amount of self-experimentation that went on in the late 60s and, and early 70s with, with a lot of physicians. And, yeah. Uh, so in, in that way, Gottlieb was sort of, sort of ahead of the game in terms of his own experimentation. Yeah, yeah, I guess he did enjoy it quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he claims he took it. He, when I interviewed him, he claimed the number he put on it was forty or more times, and that's a that's a good number. That's even for 
you know, a rock musician during the early 70s, that would have been a, a large number of times, I think. It seems to me like that could really damage your mental health, though, permanently, if you're not careful. I don't know a lot about LSD. I, but... I would guess so. It's I've read a tremendous amount on it. And it's it's not uncommon at all for some people to take the drug that number of time. And even for people today, there's a tremendous amount of self-experimentation that goes on among professionals and scientists and physicians, doctors with LSD type drugs, some much, much stronger. And people that uh, will engage in it like every weekend for a long, long period of time. And then they have these excursions to South America where they, no, I can't think of the, there's one drug that's actually blown into people's noses, but that's extremely powerful, much, much, much more powerful than oh, LSD. Yeah. That dust, I know what and, you're talking about, people, I've seen specials about yeah, that. Yeah, people pay for that experience now. And I've I've actually talked to people that have taken part in that. Uh, oh my God, a, a, a large number of times, large number, and supposedly, or you know, I don't think supposedly claimed to take advantage of 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 the effects to to do a, do a, you know certain level of soul searching or whatever, and maybe that's good. I don't know. I don't know. I don't see. I don't think anybody's come up with the the answer to anything, uh, anything earth shattering yet as a result of that. But maybe on a personal level, uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. So the last segment of your book, you put all, a lot of pieces of the puzzle together, and it just a way that was just riveting. You know, mm -hmm. it was it was you really did have a big payoff in the end, and. Part of that mm -hmm. was the revelation that that last meeting at Deep Creek Lake was it was not a get together like it was sold to Frank Olson. They were there. Correct. To, they were there yeah. to interrogate Frank. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that led to, you know, to the New York trip. What was it? Eight or nine days later. Yeah. Some not people even, yeah. some people claim that that there was no connection and they bought the, the story, you know, that the. LSD was given again as a as a lark, and and that Olson reacted badly to it. But to react badly nine days later is just yeah. uh, that defies defies the the logic of of the experiment with most people. And I think you know the the interrogation was was not successful. And and again they were they were kind of grasping at straws as to you know, what are we going to do with this guy? We don't, you know, we don't want him talking to anyone. I think people that that compare Olson to whistleblowers today are are, are really kind of in, in the wrong, barking at the wrong tree because whistleblowers were, were a phenomenon that wasn't known in the 1950s at all. There, there yeah. were no whistleblowers. And the press, the media was extremely close to the government and uh, and the agency in the 50s, uh, the media was uh, extremely infiltrated with agency people. So, yeah, uh, approaching approaching the media and, and and talking out of school would have been very unlikely. I think you know you would have probably immediately talked to the wrong person, and nobody's going to write an article you know, front page article uh, exposing the CIA. That just didn't happen in the 1950s. Uh, yeah. CIA didn't have the reputation then that it has today. So Olson, you know, he, he wanted out, but it was, you know, he was really in a real quagmire. It's like, how was he going to get out if, if they didn't say, okay, go, you know? And they probably would have been better off if they just said, okay, go. You know, uh, yeah. we want we want your assurance that you you're not going to talk. But he went. I think he went. He went about things entirely in the wrong way, uh, and just provoked a lot of concern. Whatever, uh, whatever. A lot yeah. of people, and and if something like Ponce Saint Esprit had gotten out publicly 
you know, they couldn't take that chance because the Russians, you know, that was the height of the Cold War. The Russians would have had a field day with that kind of information. Uh, you know, they're worried about the Russians infiltrating elections today. But I think, oh. I think if the Russians had something like that to use against, you know, the Democratic uh, Democratic United States, that would have just been a horrible disaster i mean we we would have become the laugh a laughing stock like you wouldn't yep. believe and and, and that because, would have been horrible and, yeah. and especially because i mean i can't imagine how we would have looked after this is like seven or eight years after we got done helping prosecute war cr- criminals at nuremberg for exactly the, for the exact same kind exactly. of thing doing human experiments yeah you know? and france was an ally <laughs> you know yeah, very strong ally, ally. Yeah. so so uh now, what is just you can if you if you really step back and look at it objectively, you can you can really almost appreciate the level of, of their concern about about what was going on with him. It was at this point that we discussed Wormwood, the Netflix documentary series about Frank Olson's murder that was released in December 2017. The one thing that should be mentioned, I guess, I have not seen the the Netflix series. Uh, oh, you're that kidding me, Earl really? Morris. Wow. No, I, I I will see it. I, I understand it's. I can see it anytime I want, but uh, I just it, it, it for me that was a bad experience. Uh, but I do oh, know I'm that uh, because I went through it uh, personally when I was working on the book with Eric Olson that that the Netflix series paints out uh, Korea and the the alleged use of. Of uh, by the Americans of biological warfare, warfare in Korea as being what Olson was trying to uh, speak out about, but that you kind of knocked I that down in your good, book, you know. No, I spent two years uh, exploring that primarily because I knew Eric felt so strongly about it. Uh, talked to the same, talked to the very same people that convinced him, and and talked to every expert. I could I could locate and a lot of extremely knowledgeable people and 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 came to the conclusion yeah we we may have done something on a very very small scale in Korea extremely small scale but nothing nothing shocking or 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 you know uh, on a large basis and Olson certainly had no involvement whatsoever and what was going on in Korea. I mean, his passport shows that during the, the very same time Korea was going on, he was in and out of Europe all the time, France, England, Sweden, Norway. You know, he was, he was nowhere near, he was nowhere close to Korea. Uh, and his shop did very little, SOD did very little related to Korea. So I just found the whole Korean thing to be, frankly, bogus. I just... I guess I guess it's splashier and and maybe more shocking, but but in terms of evidence, there was none. Yeah, you know, there was nothing whatsoever. Whereas with Pont Saint Esprit, you had CIA documents that specifically mentioned Pont Saint Esprit as an experiment and something they wanted to suppress and that could be embarrassing and and everything else. And uh, well, one so thing. So why? Yeah. Why they did that in the in the Netflix show, I'm I'm really not sure at all. One th- one thing that came through in your book, uh, Hank, is that you had a lot of empathy for Eric Olson, and um, you wanted mm-hmm. you wanted to help him however you could. But you sh- you shared a really you shared a really uh, you shared a piece of wisdom, like a little part of a little note you wrote him, and it said something along the lines of. Um, you know, the truth can be a slippery serpent or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, keep in mind, you have to take the good with the bad. You know, you have to be able to accept. Yeah, all the I, truth, I, you know? I, I, I went through that sort of uh, explanation with him a, a few times. It, it, it wasn't easy for me. It wasn't easy working with him towards the end. The, the I worked with him closely with him for about eight years and and a lot of the time was almost, you know, on a daily basis for, for about three and a half or four years, uh, mainly through emails, sometimes phone calls, but mostly yeah. emails. Uh, and I went up there, I went up from Florida to, to Maryland and D.C. 
oh, at least three times a year for several years uh, and met with Eric and, and his attorney at the time, uh, who Harry he Hude? was pressing to, yeah, Harry Hughie, who, who, who he was pressing to sue the, the CIA. And, and, and yeah. uh, I think Harry's dead now. I'm not sure. But Harry was a good guy. And, and I think, if anything, did a disservice to Eric because he knew he was, uh, problem was he was Eric's friend. And they had been friends before Eric, you know, even probably was aware that Harry was was an attorney. They worked together on a, a project involving a flood in West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, and but Eric had it in his head that uh, uh, that, and this was maybe the the genesis of our long acting kind of falling out. Uh, Eric, Eric had it in his head that he was going to sue the, the CIA for at least $50 million. Yeah. And, and, and my reaction to that, even at the beginning was, you know, I said, well, Eric, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's admirable and I can understand why you'd feel that way. But I said, I said, I don't think anyone has ever sued the CIA, much less the American government, uh, for $50 million or, or much less, you know, $5 million. And I said, your problem here, and, it, and this is laid out in detail in the book, is, yeah. is your family signed, signed an agreement with, you know, with the U.S. Congress and the President of the United States and the CIA that it would take a certain amount of money in 1976 uh, for the wrongful death of Frank Olson and, and they, that they would never sue again unless they could prove that everything that had been admitted and agreed to had been fa- deliberately falsified. Yeah. And nobody's ever come close to, to proving that. Nobody, nobody whatsoever. And nobody will now because... The witnesses because are dead. For the simple fact that everyone, everyone's dead. Yeah. yeah. They're all gone. They're in the so, ground. So then Cy Hurst steps forward and, and complicates everything by, and again, I haven't seen the show, but somebody described to me saying that, okay, and somewhere within the bowels of the CIA, there's a, a ho- holy grail vault that, that has all the answers to everything, which which to <laughs> me is complete BS. Yeah. That's that's just not the way it works. and. And and that he he'd been exposed to it. And yeah, your father died for all the wrong reasons. But I can't tell you. I mean, you got you got a, a world class journalist who dealt with the story to begin with, telling you, well, I could I could tell you something very explosive, but I won't because because I want to protect my CIA source from from what? I mean, it had it had to be an old source. What would he be? Who's he protecting? Why does he have to name the source? Why can't he at least say, "Well, I'm not going to name the person," uh, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what this he or she said, you know. But it's my understanding that you know nothing was said whatsoever. So, so you had, you know, what six, seven hours of of complete dissatisfaction in terms of reaching any resolution. Oh, you're talking uh, about the, the document as far as the documentary format. Yeah. Well, right. you know, yeah. I, I I would love to talk to you again after you see the whole thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I yeah, we, I, we actually should, and I do plan on. I just read. I get I get emails all the time about what my reaction was to it, and people are always amazed when they say, "I I haven't watched it," but I had you know my experience with the with the whole production was not a good one simply because I spent a lot of time working with Earl Morris and, and his staff and, and actually traveled, went up on at their cost to Boston. And, oh, so you were consulted for this? I was consulted uh, early, early, early on just, just to, they told me, I was told they were exploring the thought of doing something for Netflix, but they had no idea what. And that when when they came to some sort of conclusion, then we would pick back up on our discussions. But then, uh, and that was through a two-day meeting in Boston. And then a month later, they asked, they said, can we come 
can we come to your house in Florida and spend uh, two or three days going through your files? <laughs> My files are pretty massive. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I said, assuming that we're going to come to some sort of relationship here yeah. on, on, you know, the production. Sure. And uh, a couple of researchers came down, very, very nice people and, and uh, spent a couple of days going through everything, copying things and, and borrowing things and whatever, and and that was it. I never heard another peep until oh, I think I read a month before the show was going to air. But <laughs> and uh, and I and I actually called Earl and I said, you know, Earl, you know what's going on here? You know, I said you initially called me out of the blue, and this had been like five years before. Told me who you were. I said I I knew. You know, I recognized his name. You told me you you read my book and you thought it was a masterpiece and you wanted to make a some sort of production out of it. You didn't know what, and we went from there. And I said, <laughs> now I understand you've made a production and you haven't credited me with any way, in, in any way. And he said, yeah, that's right. I'm shocked about said, that. I, I, yeah. Hank, I'm shocked about that, yeah. too, after I've read your book. You know, I read your book after I saw yeah. the documentary, and I'm shocked that you weren't credited mm-hmm. for yeah. anything well, that happened. And that was it. And he said, yeah, that's right. And and I waited, and he had nothing else to say. And I said, well, oh, wow. okay. You know, I said, you you do what you, you do what you have to do, you know? Jeez. I'm really sorry they did that to you, Hank. And, uh no, I, listen, it's my fault. It's, you know, I should have been, I shouldn't have been as trusting at all. And it's, it's really not a big deal because the story hasn't really been told yet. And, and the thing is, I mean, the book came out in 2000, was it 2008, 2009? And a tremendous amount of new information has come forward since then. And, you know, I didn't share any of that with them. Uh, I was smart enough to realize, well, I'm, not going to do that until we do have some kind some of kind arrangement, of yeah. even if it were a verbal arrangement. But I don't know. I I can't imagine how they spent six hours covering what they did cover. But I'll I'll find out soon. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I'll look forward to talking. And can I go yeah. through the mur- can I go through the murder itself with you real quick before I let you go? Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. I, I'm running a little late. Oh, okay. But yeah, All right. five minutes. Sorry, sure. yeah, just five minutes. All right, so they take him to New York City. Okay. The uh, interrogation wasn't successful. They didn't like whatever answers they got from him. They take him to New York City. Right, right. And, and he ends up flying out the room of a hotel, you know, the 13th floor right. of the hotel. The two thugs who came up to his room and woke him up were probably mm-hmm. aiming. They were aiming to abduct him or take him to Chestnut Ridge, yeah. take him somewhere else. Yeah. But it just kind of got out of hand, right? right? And so right. He, he maybe he resisted or whatever, but they he ended up getting chucked out yeah, the I window think he, instead. I think he, he knew, you know, 2.30 in the morning, woke up from sound sleep, dressed in his underwear, and they're trying to strong arm him out of the room. And somehow, uh, by hook or by crook, he goes through the window. It seems very odd, very curious, very strange. But again, who's going to throw somebody through a closed window? Yeah. Uh, you know, that has that. that it, it's also a partition closed window. And it had sort of a lacy curtain in front of it. And then behind the lacy curtain was one of those heavy canvas uh, shades, drawn shades. So, you know, he had to have gone through that window with tremendous force. And I don't think it was a case where he was thrown. I think there was, I, the way it was described to I me, mean, there was some kind of struggle and he just went out the window. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing somebody didn't go out with him, but, you know, that's it. And the, and the people, you know, the two people that that were in the room uh, I identify in the book and go into a, yeah. a lot of a lot of their history and you know the fact that they were involved certainly wasn't surprising at all but uh oh yeah well yeah next time we talk we'll have to go into those guys a little bit if you don't mm-hmm. mind <laughs> you know but i can tell you that the story you tell in your book hank which is backed up with years of painstaking research you did it's not the mm-hmm. not really the same story that that, that the documentary tells and I <laughs> just wonder, yeah, I, I wonder if maybe they cut off contact with you because you're the information you had is not the story they wanted to tell. You know, I wonder if that's part of it. Well, I, I think that I think that's definitely the case. I think that 
that is the case between between Eric and I. We we have an eventual falling out after eight years, where where he basically said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm married to the the Korean War story," and I said, "Well, Eric, that's you can stick with anything you want." I said, "You know, we don't we don't have any any uh, arrangement." I said, "You can believe anything you want." I said, "I've been honest with you all along, and I told you I'm going to go." Uh, wherever the story takes me and, and where the, where the facts go. I said, if, if it were Korea, that would be fine. That would be wonderful. But I, I just said, I don't see it. I don't see any, any evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, and I said, the evidence of, of other accounts are, is just overwhelming in my book. Yeah. You know, so honestly, I only got Netflix, uh, I think about two months ago oh, because yeah. I was working on another book and I didn't, I, I was living in North Carolina and I didn't want to have the diversion of having access to cable TV because I love to watch shows like that. But, but yeah. I will, I am going to watch that show probably within the next 10 days. And, and okay. if you call me in 10 days, we, we can talk about it. Really? All right. Great. And there's a number of interesting that. things because, because there's, there's a, there's a lot of uncanny uh, coincidences and in, in relationships to, the the book I'm the book I'm just finishing and uh, and the Olson book that yeah. were entirely unexpected but when you really think about it entirely entirely sensible in a lot of ways but yeah. anyway uh, we'll so, talk I'm, again okay I'm sorry to keep or, you so much I'll email you. I, I know I promised you 45 yeah. minutes I kept you way longer sorry yeah, about no that problem. but uh, no problem I really appreciate your time yeah and I look forward to talking okay. to you next time and maybe we can talk a little bit about your cool. next book next time too if you want all right you know? thanks to author and investigative journalist H.P. Elborelli for this interview and thank you Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast Kevin's website is in com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.